0: Hello, this is Jeff Treisman. This is Matt Schmidt. And you're listening to Impolitik.
1: This critical race theory urges intolerance of all human beings that have been created in the image of God. I do not agree with teaching children how to feel about things. That is called indoctrination.
2: I'll be damned if I will allow a Marxist revolution to take place in this country, and we need to reject our children even being taught it. The proposed amendment that y'all are looking at requires that teachers define American history based on standards in the Declaration of Independence. At at that time in our history, black people were property, and they weren't even considered to be people. Teaching the facts will bring the country together, not divide the country. This is a deliberate plan to politicize and whitewash history. Thank you, Mr. President. Stop it!
1: Susan Er Eric. Eric Kirk. We
2: say. Your time is up. Thank you. Allow teachers to teach the truth. 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 Okay, we're gonna take a five-minute recess because the court reporter needs a ma'am. We'll Mrs. Acker, we will come to you when we come back in.
0: Dr. Nola Cabrera is an associate professor in the Center for the Study of Higher Education at the University of Arizona. He studies the racial dynamics on college campuses with a particular focus on whiteness. Dr. Cabrera's publications have appeared in the leading educational journals, such as the American Educational Research Journal, Review of Higher Education, the Journal of College Student Development, and Research in Higher Education. And of course, his work has been used extensively in education policy Nolan, welcome to Impolitic. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So I just want to jump right in, right Go off the it. bat. What is critical race theory? And more importantly, in the kind of the spirit of this podcast, how would you explain it to somebody totally outside of academia? Imagine we're sitting okay. down at a Thanksgiving dinner and your uncle That's asks you, right, what is critical race theory? You
1: know, if I'm to do it for, say, you know, my uncle at Thanksgiving, I'd say, a lot of times when you hear the word racism, it's it, uh, colloquially, it kind of usually means like an individual defect and it leads to really unproductive conversations. Oh, you're a racist. You're not a racist and all this stuff that in, and people have been really dissatisfied with that, um, both colloquially and educationally for, for, for years. And so critical race theory really started saying, no, racism is not an aberration. It's foundational to American society, and then using that as a jumping off point to explore the ways that it is manifest, and not just, again, as, as some aberration, but as a structure of society. And so it would be along those lines, like taking it from sort of the individual to the systemic, and really seeing how it's ingrained in in, in everyday life and in our policies, and frequently, almost unconsciously and invisibly in our policies, it's
0: only when you start really
1: pushing on it that you start seeing the reality of it.
0: Can you can you give a bit of historical background on the formation of critical race theory sure. um because I understand in the 1980s that seems to have been a particularly important era uh in the development of critical race theory as an academic discipline. And I understand particularly that was focused around Harvard and uh, Kimberly Crenshaw uh, was a young law student at the time. Can you kind of describe that those formative years?
1: So it, it, it was uh, very much along the lines of what I had said that, you know, and, and actually it makes sense that law would be the one to go from the individual to the systemic, because so much of our law is based upon individuality. That is that, you know, if you're going to say that a harm has occurred unless it's like we, all of us are in a class action lawsuit, it's that, you know, you hit my car, you owe me money. Right. So it's, it's in, individualized like that. And that works in some cases, but it doesn't work when we're trying to take account of race of the law. And so actually the real, the formative person in it was Derek Bell where he started taking those analyses and really the, I hate exactly saying that it was the the ab, absolute sort of um Uh, you know, big bang point, but a lot of people point to his theory of interest convergence um, as really that formative analysis that began, that really jumpstarted all of this. I think it was about 1979 where he reinterpreted uh, Brown versus the Board of Education because, you know, it's a very well, widely celebrated law that bans segregation. Separate is inherently unequal. And he took an alternative interpretation, not of the result, but of the rationale for the result coming out. And he said that, you know, really what started to compel the judges in the supreme court was that the um it was only when you started showing that white kids were harmed through segregation that you could actually get segregation banned it wasn't enough just to show that uh that black kids were getting harmed by segregation or the precursor to it uh, mendez versus westminster you couldn't show that brown kids were being harmed by it that people didn't care about that so much it was that you had to show that white and BIPOC students were getting harmed in that, and so his theory said that uh, basically the the. Um, uh, the, the interests of communities of color are not going to be advanced to the law unless they converge, interest convergence, with those of white, uh, white communities. From that, it started. people started doing, like you said, through Kimberly Crenshaw, her intersectionality work, um, Cheryl Harris, when she referred to whiteness not just as an individual attribute, but as property in her classic piece, you know, uh, Mari Matsuda and words that wound, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that a number of legal scholars started expanding that, And they they were kind of loosely tied together. They didn't really have a coherent theme. And so they started saying, well, we're kind of in the same area, but we don't really have um, a tie that binds. And so they wanted to name it. And that's what they did. They said critical race theory sort of encapsulates what it is that we're doing. Um, But the theory area was kind of a, a tricky one because it wasn't saying that they actually had a racial theory of of law in the United States, it was there was supposed to be a theorizing space. It was supposed to be a space for these scholars of color to really come together and offer these different interpretations of the law and really see how systemic racism is embedded in the everyday function of the legal system. And so that was how it went, it was in law, and then that was established through the early nineties. And then uh, in my area where it became really formative was in 1994, because we were dealing with many of the same issues in, in educational spaces. Um, that uh, Gloria and Billings, and, and, and Bill Tate wrote their classic piece towards a critical race theory of education, where they took the foundational components of critical race theory in law and then applied them to uh, educational spaces. Much along the lines of the same thing, that all too often, it, it, they were pushing back against a slightly different paradigm. Their paradigm they were pushing back against was multiculturalism. And it's not that multiculturalism is inherently bad or flawed. But there's kind of a false promise of it. Like, you know, if we come together and and I say, Hey, you know, I'm different. I have, I'm, I'm from this area and you're from this culture. And I'm, you know, we, we just sort of say, talk about our differences, but don't contextualize them within, within structures of, of, of privilege and marginalization that, you miss basically the larger point of why all these differences exist in the first place, and also how harmful uh, a lot of, of educational practice can be on a, on both a structural and individual level. And so that's really how it's gone that, that you know it's it's really been trying to move from from to a real critical analysis of how racism is embedded in society. But it, like I said, it started in law and has moved on to uh, over to, to education, and now it's become a political boogeyman in our everyday
2: discourse. So, so Jeff framed this about you describing uh, this, explaining this to your uncle, and I want you to explain it to my uncle, which might be a little different. Um, you've, you've written, you've used this phrase, right? White guys on campus, uh, which I, I can just imagine my uncle hearing that and his head exploding, and then what would come out of his mouth after that. And you've also talked about yourself as an implied, applied and an engaged scholar, which I really love. So, so take everything you just said about CRT, right? Um, and talk to my uncle about it in terms of why, why are you using this phrase white guys on campus? And how do you, how do you do your, how do you engage with a community that is so instantaneously hostile when hearing things like white guys on campus? Absolutely. So let's, let's back up really quickly. So just a bit of, tip. I'm going to Uber nerd and then go to the,
1: go to the, go to the colloquialism. That's good. Um, we love Uber nerds here. That's, that's that, That's beautiful. Yeah. That's wonderful. So, um, you know, I'll, 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 one of the important um, advancements of the 1960s was the destabilization of inherent white superiority okay and you know we have to kind of put ourselves back about a half a century or a little more than half a century but it was overtly stated that you know white people biologically culturally are inherently a superior being and so much of our of our of our legal economic educational all these structures were based upon, were predicated upon that. You know, I mean, segregation was it's harmful for the races to mix because it will harm our racial purity in that process. Well, the 1960s, it wasn't just about, you know, important legislation like, you know, the, like the Civil Rights Act, or the Voting Rights Act, but there was also an ideological shift. And so it went, and again, this is nerding out. It went from more of a totalitarian regime of, of racial domination to a hegemonic one. So whiteness... Whiteness was very much seen overtly as inherently superior, pure, perfect, you know, the, the, the ideals of society. After the 60s, it didn't go away. It got driven underground and becoming more of a normal space. And that's why white guys on campus is so jarring to so many people, because if you're white in society, you don't really have to think about your white identity very much. A lot of the ingrained privileges in society are just sort of there, and you just—it's just a normal way of being. It's the—it's the—it's the, the, the kind of the tired old metaphor of the—you know—it's like, or the analogy of a fish in water. You know, it's just—it's just a normal way of existing. And so, you know, for those who really do get rattled by that, what I try to engage in and this is shameless self-promotion here, but bear with me, um, is a concept that I've been developing called white immunity. So it's my compliment to white privilege because a lot of times these conversations, especially around white privilege, get debunked and I'm sure derailed uh, in, in, in Kansas. I mean, I'm from McMinnville, Oregon. This is not your Portland, Oregon. This is a lot different. Um, and uh, they get derailed really fast when white privilege comes up because that there's a, a semantic meaning behind privilege like my basically you know i should you be you mean
2: I, you mean that you want to avoid using the word privilege because it's a trigger and you're trying to use the word immunity to lessen the the start of the conversation a little, bit, start.
1: A little bit i think that i think that theoretically it has a greater accuracy than white privilege but i mean and I, I can t- i can <laughs> i can give you a, a look at my ted talk on the history of whiteness formation <laughs> you know um no i'm uh, uh but the the, the I, I think that the effect, not necessarily the concept, but the effect discursively, it, it makes people less defensive for this reason, that if we say that systemic racism doesn't necessarily function as an elevating force for white people, but creates a social inoculation, a social isolation, you know, that you don't have to deal with things, it does, it makes it less about you. Right. So like a lot of white privilege stuff, like if you read Peggy McIntosh's stuff, it says, you know, well, my uh, you know, I can find a Band-Aid in uh, that matches my skin color. I can get curricular materials that testify to the existence of my group. Those are all important things, but it still centers white people in the conversation. Right. White immunity asks a different question. And it says, what is happening to other communities that are not white that I don't have to deal with? And it requires kind of a mental and actually I try I try to do kind of the heart and head at the same time, saying that like empathetically, what's happening over there and how can we create some sort of a connection off of it, right? Because in many, it's not saying that, oh well, George Floyd was a caring father. It's that, well, he had drugs in his system. It was just this animalistic and he deserved, you know, what about the cops? And in many respects that it, it, it's a lack of empathy and a lack of connection that, that leads to a lot of these divisive conversations. And so for me, I try, I don't want to shy away from using the term white because I don't like, um, I, I, I think it's sort of like, I don't want to cater to that, uh, lack of racial awareness. But at the same time, I want to offer different avenues into these discussions. And in particular, I use white immunity as, as, as that way of doing it. So I say, you know, Hey, you know, this is my concept and yes, I'm self-aggrandizing. I get it. I can also be a little self-deprecating that kind of helps lower the, but then it be, it bears the question, you know, I mean, the classic example down here in Arizona is, um, like one of the highest concentrations of undocumented people in Arizona come from Canada and they're largely a white population. There is no consideration, nor should there be, of locking up undocumented Canadians with kids in cages the way they do to brown migrants along the border. So again, it's not saying, hey, look at how privileged these Canadian migrants are, these undocumented Canadians, these undocumented white Canadians. It's saying, look at the differential impact that society is having because of racism and look at and really engage. Because a lot of times in in a lot of the echo chambers that my friends are in, they don't even know the kids were in cages. They haven't seen the overt racial trauma that's occurred by young black and brown young men on the streets of New York City because of stop and frisk. You know, I mean, for crying out loud, White guys in Armani suits destroyed our country's economy and, you know, destabilized the international banking system. And we weren't sitting there trying to stop and frisk them on the presumption that maybe I could get something off of their laptop that might be incriminating. And and you're kind of smiling at me right now because it's absurd to even think about that idea but it was normal. I mean, at one point they had stopped and frisked more black and brown young men in in, the, in New York City than there were black and brown men in New York City. It was just such a common practice.
2: Yeah, no, you're, you're totally right. My, um, my kids are in a school that has as its base a, an anti-bias, anti-racism uh, curriculum. And, you know, they're growing up in an entirely different cultural um, environment than I grew up. And so it, it's ama- it's amazing to watch when you get them in that young Yes. How how a different kind of normalization happens, except exactly what you're saying. Right. No matter how good that A-bar curriculum is at that age, which it just essentially makes them, you know, sort of less racist from the start. But they're but they're not aware of that immunity because they're too young. Right. They don't. they're they're not aware of their their peers, dads being stopped and frisked on the other side of town or something. Um, and that, that's absolutely it's really interesting that that you would flip it that way and frame it. I think that's that's a great way to uh, to bring that message out.
1: Uh, they, and it, it is fascinating. The conversations, I have a son as well in, in public school and it's the conversations that these kids are having now they're having, they're really sloppy. Don't get me wrong. You know, it's, and it's difficult, but this wasn't even on the radar when, when I was in high school in the nineties, you, yeah. you know, you and, know, and, and I would rather, you know, these are kind of the growing pains that we have to be able to actually reconcile with, with the realities of race and society, because, you know, races in many respects is like a cancer that if we, we can't just pretend and ignore it and hope it goes away, you know, they like, know we need to know what our options are. Do I need surgery? Do I need chemo? Do I need, you know, what, what is it, you know, just sitting there and getting mad at the doctor, which is what a lot of people do to me. Like literally they're like, why are you doing this? Because I'm trying to highlight a societal ill in that process so that we can actually move to the process of actually addressing it. Uh,
2: yeah, it's been amazing uh, too because I, you know they're they're reading uh, Kendi's uh, Stamped uh, book, but the, the the kids version, and that's how I came across <laughs> it at first, uh, and then brought it up into the university classroom, which was an amazing experience, you know, for me as a as a white guy in college with a with a tie on, as it were, um, to to bring that into the classroom, uh, but but getting it from that level, getting it from that public school that's doing this kind of work. Um, so I, yeah. I'll, I'll leave it there and I'll let Jeff uh, jump in. I, I got more coming later, but yeah. No, no, go ahead. All right. <laughs> so I guess I, I want to move now
0: to, we, we've kind of defined it and we've established that this, it's a critical race series. So this is really broad discipline that a lot of scholars came at it with you know, different kinds of uh, backgrounds, methodologies and training, which I think opens it up for at least in terms of, Academia, some criticisms or challenges, specifically on the methodological side, which I think you've done some work on, right? Yeah. In terms absolutely. of omitting confounding variables, some things are not fully operationalizable to be really nerdy. It's mm-hmm. it's very difficult to test some hypotheses related mm-hmm. to critical research. Can you can you kind of talk about the the criticisms or challenges it's faced in academia? Sure. No,
1: that's it's it's, a, it's 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 good that we're open and honest about this. Um, I, I I do get in a little bit of trouble because I actually consider myself a critical theorist of race, but not a critical race theorist. So a lot some critical race theorists purists get a little annoyed at me for talking out of turn. Um, but I think one of the one of the big ones is is um, and I alluded to it earlier that the term theory was always aspirational. And people actually use it as a standalone theory. You know, here's my theoretical framework. I'm using Bordeauxian social and cultural capital. I social capital? I operationalized it this way, but you know, these ones it doesn't it doesn't have a, as consistent an operationalization. And um, I've always been a little well, the, 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 there has been some pushback because um, uh, one of the core. It's either an explicitly or implicitly stated tenet of critical race theory is sort of uh, an, um, uh, is an o- overt rejection of of claims of objectivity, meritocracy, and you know and 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 yeah, I really I'll be honest, I really struggle with those ones on a, on a, on a number of levels um, because they can be like I don't like. The idea of meritocracy, ideologically, where we just say, "Hey, you know, um, you know, I'm at the University of Arizona, and my colleague is over at Stanford University, ergo, it is a better university, so he is a better professor, more meritocratic." Like, you know, and so on the surface level, I totally get rejecting meritocracy like that, um, but there there are some issues where it kind of flattens out excellence, and and there have been some issues uh, around those lines.
2: Um, one of the, one of the, I'm going to interrupt, speak, speak to that for a second. So that, oh, sure. what do you mean by flatten out excellence? The idea that, you know, different people who are doing
1: critical race theory work are just basically all the same, that the one isn't better than the other. Um, and it, it, that's a slightly simplistic, um, uh, i'm slightly oversimplifying it but that's sometimes how it's applied or that basically all academic work is either great or it's garbage but it's not really seeing that like you know because i i see a lot of heterogeneity i've seen a lot of amazing analyses and i've seen some junk analyses and not just within critical race theory like in every academic discipline that i've done you know (laughs) so you know and 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 uh, but that's more of a minor one i think that the biggest probably the biggest issue and the biggest point of contention stems from a 1989 article by Richard Delgado, where he wrote um, a, a plea for narrative and narrative. And you got to understand coming out of legal studies, um, narrative is incredibly, incredibly important because in many respects, you have your evidence that you're presenting in a legal case, but you're constructing a narrative around it. And you're doing all this and you're trying to convince whoever in a legal sphere and a lot and narrative becomes critically, critically important. So how are we framing our analyses? And th- that was a really important, um, uh, that was a really important development. You know, we have systemic inequities. Do we blame the perpetual underclasses, um, in sort of deficit oriented thinking for their perpetual underclass status, or do we take a more systemic approach? That's a choice of narrative, not necessarily about the empirical results. It's all the same inequities that we're dealing with. Um, and so from that has stemmed this core tenet and really developed by Danny Solorzano out of UCLA about um, sort of a unique voice of color tenet and then um, uh, of critical race theory coupled with this concept of counter-narrative. And this is where things get really, really, really complicated and dicey. So it starts from a, a lot of premises that I, that I agree with, and it's been applied in some amazing ways and some problematic ones as well. So the idea being that um, voices of color and community-based knowledge has largely been excluded from academia as actually valued knowledge. Um, And so the idea is that... um, through engaging in counter narrative, you can destabilize dominant narratives. You can destabilize deficit frameworks of our of our um, of our communities. You can destabilize. Um, uh, you, you can you, you can you can challenge racist rhetoric that says, you know, why don't we have more scholars of color in, in in academia? Well, you know, we just don't. There aren't enough in the in the pipeline. They don't really want to be here. It's always you know they they they, they It's always a problem with the, with those communities. And so there's ways to destabilize that. The classic piece about um, counter narrative was actually, again, done by Derek Bell. It was called the Space Traders. And what was fascinating about that was the premise said that there's an alien life form that comes to the U.S. or comes to this world and says, we will trade you all the golden riches in the world if you give us all of your black people. And asking the question, do we still see black life as that disposable? And that's it it poses some really, really difficult questions because obviously we've done it in the past. And then the question, would we really do it going into the future? How disposable do we find Black life and really destabilizing some of that rhetoric around, well, we value all people equally because we obviously don't. Just how far out would that extend? The the difficulty, though, with counter-narrative and the unique voices of color perspective is there's kind of a question about, whose voice is being included, how are we doing it? So like as Derek Bell was coming up in, in, at, at Harvard Law and developing this area, um, Randall Kennedy, another black professor in Harvard's law school said, well, I'm a black professor who doesn't agree with these premises. How do I fit in to this larger sphere? And critical race theory hasn't quite, critical race theorists haven't quite been able to reconcile that one. I mean, you could take it out to a, to a really, uh, to a, a, almost an absurd extreme. Ben Carson is a black man. So critical race theorists would never, ever, ever um, say that, you know, I'm challenged. He's not authentically black. Like that's, that's something that's off the table. We don't do that. But his view of what the problems are that are ailing uh, the, uh, the black community, the same thing with Clarence Thomas you know, that that those are not narratives that would necessarily be highlighted in critical, by critical race theorists, yet they kind of oddly fit within the same paradigm. And so there's this epistemic question about who are we actually choosing, who are we trying to advance? Because they say that the critical race theorists try to say, well, we're advancing social justice and they're not. Well, again, <laughs> Ben Carson and, and, and Clarence Thomas try to say, we are advancing justice and you're not. So there's these weird differences in how do we reconcile these and what does, and there are are definitely difficult epistemic questions about what constitutes a truth claim um, within critical race theory. But again, just in, in, I want, I think I really want to be clear about this because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really sensitive to it. I was reading the, um, uh, the book on fascism, um, uh, which is just an imp- a critically important book at this point in time. But in many respects, people who have sort of a fascist orientation, and I've used this intentionally, uh, especially in response to the, the the previous administration, they use the the innate kind of tensions and unresolved issues within academia to say that it's just a bunk, you know, it doesn't mean anything at all. That, You know that that you, you basically my my view that the world is flat is just as valid as person X, or my you know my view that there is no climate change or my view that racism doesn't exist is just as valid. And so as I'm talking about tensions that are embedded in critical race theory, I don't want that in any way to be to mean that therefore critical race theory is horrible. As with any social science humanities in any exploration, there's always going to be unresolved issues. I mean, that's supposed to be the basis of the scientific method that, you know, you come to a conclusion and that provokes six more questions. So, um, you know, I want to make sure that your audience is clear um, uh, about my stance on that, that as I'm kind of playing through those critiques, I mean, the fact that we're talking about is critical race theory, you know, 40 some odd years after its creation shows a certain amount of staying power. And these are just unresolved issues that need to continue to be uh, uh, ferreted out.
0: I wanna I wanna now move to like I guess um the the kind of the the controversy uh, mm-hmm. of course that we have to get to, right? Of of why is critical race theory so controversial? And as somebody myself who studied history as an oh. undergrad, um, and then of course professionally, and now as as a matter of personal curiosity and interest, it, it seems to me that a very basic review of American history clearly demonstrates to a certain extent, at least institutional discrimination against certain racial groups. I mean, quite literally enshrined in their constitution that some mm-hmm. individuals are only equal to three fifths of a human being. Right. Um, but, you know, you think about some of these statistics today. Um, so, for example, you know, economic inequalities in the United States, right? I mean, that's a clear one, uh, whites versus blacks. I, I think I've got some of the statistics in my head, but, you know, whites have, you know, 77,000 on average and blacks are, you know, in the United States, roughly less than 50,000.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, they get really big when you talk about wealth gaps because oh, that, that's really where you, that's where you really see the stark differences.
0: Oh, oh yeah, that's 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 right. Um, and then of course, you know, uh, unemployment, Um, homeownership. Uh, It it travels into other areas like uh, healthcare, for example, rates of illness and death death and other conditions like diabetes and obesity and heart disease compared to to white populations. Um, I know that black women in in the United States are three times more likely to die after giving birth than um, white populations in the United States. Uh, We already alluded to policing, um, being stopped by the police, but I mean, I think you know police shootings we talk about you know this is an issue today right um i think nearly 50% of uh police shootings um the individual or the suspect was black but of course the black population only constitutes what roughly 13% of the us population uh, yeah, right. so it's incredibly disproportionate um education political representation um and you don't have to look very far right minorities are clearly underrepresented in congress there's only three black senators um you know Obviously, all these things that I cited, the causal factors and explanations, of course, are going to vary for each of these and in different areas. Uh, but what's critical for me when I think about this controversy, going back to my question, is that these are all facts. These are not political statements, right? These are facts. How then can it be that these facts are so controversial? So I... I'm going
1: <laughs> to and you see you're going to see that I do this all the time. Um I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip your I'm going to twist your question just a little bit, but I think it'll illuminate exactly what we're getting at. I you have to remember that the people who are primarily leading this charge, I mean, the first formal declaration against critical race theory through the Trump administration was specifically it was it was also by the same administration that co- talked about alternative facts. Okay. You know, it's it's there's a certain irony that on the one hand, when we're talking about institutions of higher education, right? Because they, the conservative right loves deriding this snowflake generation and you know the the pinned tweet on Ben Shapiro's Twitter pages, you know, facts don't care about your feelings. Well, the irony is that the conservative right, the leaders of it, don't care about facts. And in many respects, what we're talking about here is we're not talking about an honest controversy. Okay. Like this the tensions within critical race theory that I was talking about earlier, you know, where you have where you have Derek Bell and Randall Kennedy having an intellectual debate about how do we actually explore truth in this even though they're diametrically opposed in their viewpoints, they're still on the same side. They still believe in pursuing truth. They still believe in supporting, uh, you know, uh, diversity, equity, and ultimately black liberation. Like the, the, that's, this is, this is uh, what the debate we're having is the sky is blue. No, the sky is green. Okay. Now I actually have a little bit of insight into why this occurs because I'm in the state of Arizona. So we kind of had the precursor to the critical race theory bands in a Mexican-American study spans. And so there's, there's a very concerted playbook that's happening. And so the first thing that we have to remember is that what is the political timing of what's happening right now, right? When when, when, when the, pre, when, when the uh, previous president tried to ban critical race theory, he was going up for re Right. So, again, it's a politically opportunistic time. Why does it start to reemerge right now? Why are you seeing and not just critical race theory, but bans on, 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 on trans athletes, attacks on abortion, I mean, all these different things that are supposed to be red meat to the base. So then, then, then Jeffrey, as an historian, I mean, look back to the, you know, and I know each group tries to do something to bring their base out. But let's be honest, the Democrats are not that good at it. The Republicans are exceptionally good at it. Back in two thousand two, two thousand three, or two thousand two and two thousand six, it was gay marriage and immigration. It's evolved now, and they found that you know uh, that, that it can be ethnic studies, which is my area, or critical race theory, and you know trans girls, which they consider to be boys, which are predatory, and all all these ridiculous, horrible myths around around transness. The point is not. See, the, the difficulty that you're having right now is you're trying to accurately define what critical race theory is, when in fact, because people don't know what critical race theory is, that's exactly the point. In Arizona, we did people in the masses didn't know what Mexican-American studies was. They just knew it was very different and intentionally different than, than the way that education is usually done. And so all of a sudden, it's like, they're coming for white people. They're Marxist. They're going to overthrow the U.S. government. And that was actually written into the law that banned Mexican-American studies, which you can't have classes that overthrow the promote the overthrow of the U.S. government, even though treason and sedition have been illegal since the inception of the country. I mean, you don't need a law to do it. You need a discursive law to say this is what they're doing. It's a public policy discourse, not an actual public policy. And so what ended up happening with critical race theory is these folks realize that there's this kind of catchy term, it's this catch all, you know, and oh my God, we have to protect our children from this. I mean, the stupid counter to that is that this is a grad, this is, this is graduate schools of education and, and law school. This has nothing to do with your eight year old child. Like it just doesn't. But again, when you play upon the ignorance and the fear of the masses, and that's the, 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 the two things right there ignorance and fear, you can get people to do a lot of horrific things and do things that are outside of their interest. And so my reframing of it is it's not about necessarily setting the record straight on what critical race theory is. Let's be clear about this. What we're talking about is censorship. That's the core of it. Okay. Because I may, and and, and I'll flip again, I'll flip this on its head. I may find the views of people like Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly, Glenn Beck, Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson, completely reprehensible, but I would never, ever, ever say that they shouldn't be taught in my graduate school of education. As a matter of fact, I do teach Rush Limbaugh in my theories class. That's coming up this semester. Like I actually have people read, have to give a massive trigger warning and say, "Hey, like I'm, this just inclusion does not mean that I'm actually endorsing their beliefs." But I would, you know, would never ever say that we should ban, we we should ban uh, conservative speakers, even if they are saying, or, or conservative authors, even if they are saying overtly racist things because we still need to be able to engage those thoughts. Yet what's happening by the conservative right is they're actually saying, if you are even slightly liberal left of center, you could be banned because your thoughts are so harmful. And that, remember, that's been going on for years, right? Uh, Michael Savage used to say that liberalism is a social disease. Rush Limbaugh would say the very same thing, that that, that there's a harm that's being done to society as a result of this, but that becomes the impetus to censor. And that's antithetical to our national values. That's antithetical. You know, we cheer the, you know, the people who disrupted the Nazis doing uh, uh, book burnings. But we've had book burnings on college campuses of liberal people, because of liberal people's books and texts because of this stuff. You know, we had a book banning in Arizona because of this. That's the core of what we're talking about here is banning censorship. That's really what at, 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 what's at stake here. And so it, what do you... Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, um... I was just going to say that 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 that, um, you know that's the core of what we're talking about here. And so if if we want to have an honest debate about what's at stake here, then that's fine. You know, Um, I know you know I I know I know a book where God there was a mass genocide through a. You know, through through a a, a massive flood, Um, there's guys having sex with their daughters, and you know torture, and you know people being strung up and beaten and harmed and hung and all this stuff. And should we ban the Bible? No, (laughs) because again, that's not even on the table. But if we start opening up this venue, that's really what we're talking about. If if we're saying okay censorship's okay now then this is how we're going this is this is really what we're talking about
2: good just to understand I'm, i sometimes i'm trying to break up the long mini lectures that all three professors are, are uh, tend toward so that's what i'm interrupting you for Absolutely. No, um please. you you study education yeah you, you just laid out an impressive list of all of the worst offenders of conservative tv like without even blinking, you're like Laura Engel, Tucker Carlson, and uh, Mike Savage, um, and like 15 more in there. What can you do? I mean, do you really think that you're going to convince anyone uh, on the on the right wing in the right wing in this country? Who do who do you who do you approach? What's the goal, right? What's the what's the applied version of this mm-hmm. to 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 change the systemic racism further?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, well,
1: as it pertains to this specific issue, um, I have a I have a uh, well, a couple of different strategies. One is that I, I don't, um, th- there's been sort of this idea of don't engage with, with right-wing media. And I personally think that's a mistake. You know, it, it, did I receive a lot of hate mail when I got on Fox News? Yes. Did it change anybody's mind on an aggregate level? I actually think that there's probably somebody who did see something a little bit differently. Because, and am I saying that, you know, so there was like three and a half million viewers for, um, uh, 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 for uh, oh, it was on the Ingram file. It was Brett Barron then the Ingram file. So there, you know, were half of them swayed by my argument? Absolutely not. Um, but at the very least, I, I tried something, you know. Um, and I think that the other component is that we need to be very politically astute in these situations, that it, it's really, really difficult but um, like, like right now in the state of Arizona, they're trying to advance a critical race theory ban. Um, but what people forget is that, um, that it's a 16, uh 16, 14 Republican uh, Democrat split. One of those, you know, two of those folks come along the other direction and there's some, there are a couple of fiscal conservatives who are principled in these ways. Then, Hopefully, they can be swayed by the economic arguments. The College Board has already said that they're going to um, take the um, AP tests away from states that do this kind of censorship. Um, I mean, can you imagine the lack of college um, competitiveness that our students are going to have are going to be stripped away from them if we take away the AP tests from them?
2: I mean, there, there's there,
1: and, 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 you know, think about the. But isn't,
2: isn't, there, isn't there a critique about the AP tests being uh, you know, systemically right, like, racist, systemically racist so. you better, you okay. better
1: believe it. I, all right. you, 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 what was that throw in line? A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of a little <laughs> mind. I, I have to, exactly. I, I do have to be able to speak out of both sides of my mouth in some respects to be able to, because a lot of what I've realized is a lot of policymakers don't care at all about, about systemic racism. But they do care about other things. And it, it, that's a way it can strategically use interest convergence. It's not going to uproot the system in any way, shape, or form. It's more of a stopgap measure to prevent more harm from coming. Because I know from firsthand experience what happens when these bans go into effect. I mean, it took almost 10 years of litigation and millions and millions of dollars in lawyers' fees and countless just everything going on to, to, uh, to find that unconstitutional and we'd be going down that same road. So this could save so much time and effort and think about all that time and effort was put to actually addressing systemic racism. So there's kind of, it's kind of like when you're a boxer, you don't, you know, you're not always completely defensive. You're not always completely offensive because if you're always offensive, you're just going to get punched and you leave too many openings. But if you're completely defensive, you don't have any attack. And so this is trying to balance those two out because in the larger scheme of things, it does become important. For example, um, in the state of California for them to implement um, an ethnic studies requirement. So some accurate history will be actually required to be told um, as a a function of uh, graduating from high school. Those could be really, really important in terms of disrupting racism. And that's more of being on the offensive against racism. This is very much, I'm talking very much we got a couple months to go, and this is on defense. And so, I think that different strategies are needed. And in many respects, the defense is necessitated by the fact that we weren't as we weren't as effective as we needed to be, being on, when we had the opportunity to be on offense when 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 pressure let up a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. More of a curiosity. If if yeah. you had this giant hypothetical megaphone that you could talk to the American <sighs> public right now, given the controversy surrounding critical race theory, the megaphone could go out to the the wide American public and can go out to politicians and policymakers. What would you want people to know? Oh my goodness. It- Oh gosh. Okay. So, so my, my,
1: I'm going to say my knee jerk reaction, then I'll say what my real reaction should be. Okay. So my, my knee jerk reaction, because again, I'm, I mean, I'm a weird anomaly, you know, I, I do critical whiteness research, which is trying to, it's sort of like the opposite of critical race theory or maybe like the yin to the yang of it. Right. Like it um, uh, you know, and so the first thing that I would do is I'd be yelling out dear white people, you're not under attack. Like, stop, you know, the the, 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 the the metaphorical boogeyman is not coming after you. Stop it because, you know, and, and I, this is going to sound really stupid, but I think it actually has some relevance. I was watching Men in Black with my son the other day, and Tommy Lee Johnson and Will Smith are talking. And Will Smith says, well, why don't we just tell everyone about the reality of, of, of aliens? And he says, he says, you don't know, no. A person is a thoughtful, intelligent human being you know, who can creatively and logically work through issues. People are dumb, easily afraid animals who just react. And in many respects, that, that, that that's what we're dealing with here is on this larger level that fear and ignorance are playing out on a very, very massive systemic level. The problem, as cognitive uh, 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 linguist uh, George Lakoff out of UC Berkeley talks about in terms of framing your political debate, is that the more that you say... No, I'm not being racist. No, you're not under attack. No, this is not, you know, that's an ineffective way of framing it because it's reactive, not proactive. It shows weakness, not strength. And it has no, it has no, um, uh, a sort of core foundational belief, uh, you know, a, a core principle that's really guiding uh, what's going on here. And so for me, those would be sort of the three components that I would really want to go into. And it would, but it would really vary about what constituencies I'd be talking to. As I already said, like, if I'm talking to politicians, I'm using interest convergence to the cows come home, unless I'm in, like if I'm in Arizona, I'm using interest convergence. If I'm in California, I can be a lot more blunt about it. Um, but, you know, I think that the, the, the uh, you know, the, the, the biggest thing would be more to reframe it, like instead of don't be afraid, like, you know, asking people, why are you afraid? What do you have to be afraid of? Maybe not necessarily as prophetizing as much, but just having because the more, you know, and actually it's sort of a little trick out of, out of that psychologists use, just make people say it but in not in their echo chamber. And that's the tough part because, and that's why my own voice is very, very difficult because, you know, like my dear f- friend who was the b- best man at my wedding is up in Idaho and he's in this bubble. There's <laughs> so he could hear what I say, but then everyone's like, Oh my God, he's just a leftist, radical ponytail thing. You know, I don't, you know. of course he's going to say that because um, when you can't address a, a, an, an argument, um, analytically, you address it ad hominem. I mean, it's a it's a it's it's a it's a pretty straightforward
2: uh, method of argumentation. So I would like to. I have to break again. I would right. like to crowdsource a bribe to get you on Tucker Carlson just for the <laughs> entertainment value. Never mind, never mind the good that it will do the world. But I, I really want to see this in your analytical mind, and I want to see you, you know, say say George Lakoff in front of him and see what happens. I appreciate it. So, yeah, so that would,
1: you know, it's more of the underlying issue would be sort of the principles that I'd be, that I'd be trying to fill in the blanks. And then also the audiences that I'd need to be talking to, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to Joe Schmo as they're, you know, just random Joe Sixpack who's watching Fox news at night, that's a totally different thing than if I'm even if I'm talking to, you know, a community of color organizing space versus a politician in Oregon versus an educator in Florida, you know. And so, if we try to do a one size fits all, we lose a lot of the uh, we, we uh, homogenize the population. And in many respects, we need as many tools in our toolbox as we possibly can. And I've been trying to craft those as as much as I can. And, and I appreciate y'all for
0: letting me amplify a couple of those on this on this uh, podcast. So, well, obviously, we're going to have to have you back, man. I mean, this, is, this has been great. Um, um, I want to thank you, Professor, for joining us on politics. You've helped us learn a, a lot about what I think is a really important uh, field, of study, uh, discipline, if you will, that's arguably growing in importance as inequalities continue to widen, um, particularly between races uh, in the United States today. So uh, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to talking to you all again.
2: Now, time for the debrief with Jeff and Matt.
0: So, I mean, I, I think the first thing I would say is, you know, regarding the controversy that you know we talked about, I, I saw someone on Twitter had posted, you know, imagine your history being so horrible that you want to ban people from learning it, and I, I it really stuck with me because I think I, 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 you know, the. The facts are very clear. There's been long institutional discrimination in the United States. As Howard Zinn, the famous historian, said, you know, that the history of the United States is one of class conflict and racial discrimination. I mean, that's just pure fact. Yeah. But, I mean, as Nolan said, you, you can't really, you know, you can't really argue on the basis of facts when people are dealing with alternative facts.
2: I mean, people who don't think history is is horrendous and bloody uh, and unjust don't read history. They read propaganda. So, I mean, there's nothing else you can do as a, you know, as a political scientist. I am constantly saying, look, all the stuff that's going wrong in the system that you hate when you're like, oh, politics is terrible. I'm like, it all goes back to slavery, basically. Almost every little thing in the United States goes back to that and the impact that, that you know, that, that you had after you created a system to support slavery in order to get the union. Um, and I don't know it, 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 in, in some respects for me, if I do nothing else, but get that message out, then I'm happy as a teacher.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, he even pointed out, like, if we're really going to go down that path though, as teachers, I mean, let's, let's ban the Bible. Right. I mean, it's, that's it's yeah. that's, that's full of hate discrimination
2: uh, and intolerance and violence. Um, I, well, there's just, there's so much good workout on this. Um, you know, going back to the, to the seventies the after the Vietnam war, and looking at the rise of the evangelical movement as a political force, which which hadn't been before that. And, and, and it really starting um, as a response to veterans who were ostracized coming back from the war and the evangelical mm-hmm. churches not ostracizing them, taking them in, and then that builds through Reagan, and then you get, you know, 94 and and the, the Newt uh, Revolution. And I think really in 94, right, is when you start to get uh, the, the modern Republican Party that doesn't quite gel together until, um, you know, until after George W. probably. Um, and, and you know, it, it all goes back to this kind of identity politics. Right? That's what racial politics is to me. It's identity politics. And um,
0: yeah, and- I mean, when I asked the question, you know, about the controversy of critical race theory and he really, I mean, it boils down to, as you were kind of just saying, like it's, it's political. And uh, I was kind of surprised admittedly by that. I figured it would be a certain degree, of, you know, racism. And then we need to talk about, you know, the pervasiveness of racism in that sense as you know, because, you know, Ron, Ron governor, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis you know, described critical race theory as state sponsored racism. Yeah. Um, but the more I think about it, I, I, I do think of it and is it's a reflection of the zero sum political contest. Uh, in the United States. And as, as professor was saying, like, you know, we, we see these as these controversies percolate up when we approach midterms or elections, and that's exactly what we're seeing now. And, you know, I, I think on one side of the political aisle, the teaching of critical race theories is is viewed quote unquote, as a win for supposed liberals. Um, Although again, you know, the fundamental premise of, Critical race theory, as you said. I mean, this this is college level graduate level stuff. Right. It's, it's not being taught to,
2: you know, yeah. kids in school. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, you know, it's this idea that, that this is a zero-sum system. I think that has connections to our first past the post, right? Our zero-sum win or lose political system. It has to do with, I think, the idea that he laid out that that here you have a, a literally a black versus white race framing. Um, w- whereas when you go to someplace like Europe, it's, it's different and you have a different political system that sort of is built in at different ethnic groups is, you know, in their representation systems. And, um, I think, you know, is one of the things that I always like taking students to Europe is that they think, Oh, Europe is so enlightened and, and different from the U S. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Have you ever talked to someone from France and all the, you know, all the racial slurs that they make about, about the Germans and the yeah. Italians and everyone else, um, yeah but there's a different kind of you know push this too far there's a, there's a different kind of agreement on how the game is played right um over there um, than here i think because it's not it's not so zero sum but this was great i was thrilled to have him on i can't wait to to bring him back
0: yeah. Uh, Professor Cabrera is awesome. Uh, definitely. We'll have him back on. I want to thank uh, Professor Cabrera uh, very much for his time. And I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of, of In Impolitik. Please be sure to like and sub- subscribe for future episodes and please be sure to give us a rating as well. It really helps us out. Thank you very much, everybody. And until next time, thank you for listening.